Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We're just going to start right in, if you don't mind. I'm going cool. to look intelligent for about four seconds. Attaboy. And then I'll go back to being a complete nutter dummy. How about that? Do, do I uh, do I sound all right? Everything sounds good. You sound like a goddamn champion. I'll tell you that much. I'll take it. I'll take it. Let's go. When it comes to this, y'all, I can get it hype. When it comes to this, y'all, calm has risen. How you living, huh? Yo, how you living, pivot? Everyone in MMA comes from a different background, and so many come from wrestling. And yep. you, you come from an all-American wrestling background where it, it doesn't get tougher. You were at Mizzou, right? Division one. Yep, yep. So you were just wrestling killers um, and cutting weight and miserable, correct? Basically, basically, yeah. It was, uh, you know, I always talk about the sport of mixed martial, or mixed martial arts as it pertains to wrestlers coming into it. I mean, it's not even just the fact that we can pick guys up, put them down, get takedowns, take the fight, take the fight where we want to take it. It's got to do with all the thousands and thousands of hours that we've spent inside the confines of one-on-one -on -one competition, not just on the wrestling mat actually competing uh, in live matches, but in those grueling workouts. Uh, you know, I think it's no, it's no secret. Wrestlers are known as some of the hardest workers on the entire planet. So we just our threshold and our level at which we think hard work is, is just a lot different than a lot of people. And because of that, we also not just build up our minds, but we build up crazy tough bodies and right. we've been pretty successful in the sport of mixed martial arts thus far. Do you remember like having that background and feeling what it's like to get punched in the face? Do you remember that <laughs> I moment? Do. I, I do. You know, the, I mean, those first couple sparring sessions, you know, you're, you're, I mean, I think it's, it, it goes unnoticed sometimes in if you watch wrestling matches, it's it really is a contact sport, a lot more of a contact sport than people give it credit for. We think we're just shooting it on the legs and taking guys down or we're just pulling on guys heads. But, man, I've been rocked in wrestling matches, guys hitting me on the back of the head, headbutting each other on accident or right. on purpose sometimes head bouncing off the mat, picking guys up, slamming them. I mean, your body kind of, my body had gotten used to that, that kind of physical altercation, the blunt force traumas. Um, but nothing was like those first couple sparring sessions that I had where I was like, all right, well now this guy's going to be trying to punch me and it's legal. He's going to try to knee me and elbow me and it's legal. So you start to, you start to wage that war and it wage that negotiation between offense and defense. Uh, and, try to take your licks pretty, pretty quick and start to learn from those right away. But it was, it was definitely an eye opener when I started getting punched in the face. It, it's fascinating because wrestling is one of those sports where they're really, you have to work so hard and the end game is there's really no money in it, which is very surreal. And so it takes a certain kind of breed to do it. It's yeah. not like you're playing baseball or football or basketball, you know, yeah. um, and yet there are guys, do you, who do you think is, in your opinion, do you think Justin Gagey was the toughest guy you've, you've fought so far? Justin Gagey or Eddie Alvarez? I think Justin Gagey, the, the way that he fights, the, the manner in which he is just a, a savage, you know, he's a little yeah. bit more of a savage than Eddie was. Eddie was a little bit more technical, but brilliant with, with his technique and had the heart of a champion. But yeah, Gagey was definitely that guy. Once again, another former wrestler, you right. know, and even going back to your, your previous point, obviously there is no real professional level of wrestling. If you will, you can go to the Olympics and make a little bit of money here and there. You can get a little bit of endorsements, but truthfully, the craziest thing about the sport of wrestling too, is we were competing in front of a hundred people, 250 people, your mom and dad, aunt and uncle, and everybody's mom's dads, aunts and uncles in these, uh, these little stadiums and arenas that we were in. So you basically have no glory whatsoever. The glory was going out there, 
seeing the fruits of your labor, get labor, getting your hand raised, no, no TV deals, no, no nationwide recognition. So we were just doing it for the love of the sport. Listen, uh, brother, you could, you could put on the yellow boots and like a onesie and go out there and fake it. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's always that. Yeah, that, that works. And actually uh, a friend of mine, Gable Stevenson is about to do that as well. He signed a deal with WWE. He was, a, Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah oh, so you know what? I wonder how long that will last. It, you know, but before he wants and no disrespect to any of those guys, because I jumped off the top rope into John Cena. That's that's a true story. We may have to pull up some pictures that yeah. actually happened. I felt like a small child and he was rocking me to sleep. It was awkward, but it happened. And and I, when I got there for rehearsal and I shouldn't say that I'm going to be revealing that wrestling isn't real. And and now it's going to they're going to come to my home and. They're going to revoke. I don't know what's going to happen. The acting police will come. I don't know what's going to happen, my man. But I was at rehearsal and, and and I got to the top rope and I said, can I do this? And they were like, we haven't had an actor do that. And because I have a background as an athlete, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an elite athlete. And I know you think that when you look at me, the first Absolutely. thing you think of is, is he's an elite athlete and I'm intimidated by him. Is that uh -huh. what you think? Hundred percent. I, I see a lot of myself in you. That's why I think you know we had this this masterful chemistry. You are the most uh, danger, one of the most dangerous men on the planet. And the reality is, if someone said something to your wife in the setting of a comedy club, yeah. or you know they were on stage, you, you know you could dis. The reality is, you could dismantle anyone. That's a reality. But ironically, you know that they've set up a contract with the audience. They're going to take shots. This is yeah. comedy. You you would never, and correct me if I'm wrong, even though you could dismantle anyone, you would never get up on stage, strike someone. How dare you say that? You would have to, you defend your family. I don't know anyone else that would defend their family more. But if someone on, in, on, on a stage said something about your wife or whatever, you would hold it together, correct? 100%. And, and truthfully, it's, it's an interesting loaded question and scenario because although some people would say, well, he made a joke about your wife, so therefore you should get up and serve your wife by going and doing something to that man. It's actually the opposite of serving my wife because I would get up there, get into a physical altercation with a comedian, get arrested, and then not truthfully financially uh, be able to support my wife and serve my wife because I would be, uh, you know, I would go to jail because there's no judge out there that's ever gonna lean, uh, be lenient on me, a professional fighter, if I physically assaulted a comedian. Right, so you you have to navigate those feelings. Yeah. You know, um, do you know, and you have to turn it on and off. You have to be a decent, present, empathetic father and then an absolute killer. Yeah. You have to be a decent, present, empathetic father and then an absolute killer. Yeah. Have the two worlds ever collided? Have you ever had a moment where you're like, I got to calm down, I got to calm down? No, not really. And I get that question all the time. You know, hey, do do you know dudes out at the bar or at the restaurant or whatever? They they see your cauliflower ear. They see maybe they know who you are and they want to try to you know start something with you to you know to be that guy who beat up Michael Chandler on TMZ. And I'm like, you know, it just it doesn't really happen uh, ever. And uh, you know, mainly because I never put myself in those situations. And, and if a situation did ever escalate, uh, how do I serve? my family and keep this good reputation that I, that I want to keep, uh, by getting in fights with people and, and trying to prove how tough I am. I get, I get paid good money to fight inside of an octagon. So I'm going to go ahead and do that and let, you know, let tough guy, Bob, you know, sail off into the sunset with his little ego, even if he thinks he punked me, you know? So it's never, it's never really happened. Um, right. And well, thank God. And it won't, and it won't happen because, because of also the laws of attraction, because yeah. you're not thinking that way. There's not a, a fiber in your being that's saying, I need to, I need to, I need to take these guys out. I need to show them who's boss. And <laughs> that's what I get. That's what I get sometimes too. Maybe I'm hanging out with, you know, somebody who's newer to my friend group or whatever. And they'd be like, Hey man, what's it like to look around this entire bar restaurant and know you could beat anyone's ass. And I'm right. like, I never once thought about that. I never once walked into an establishment and was like, where's the biggest guy in the room? Oh, I could definitely beat that dude up. You know, it's just, it's not how I'm wired. I, I enjoy, I'm actually a, a non-confrontational person mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of different ways, but I 
fighting is my job. Mixed martial arts is my profession and and I do it pretty darn well. Mm-hmm. And outside of the confines of training and fighting, I'm a pretty normal dude, you know? It, it, it. I'm, I'm the exact same way. I don't walk into a room and go, do you have any idea who the fuck I think I am? You know what I mean? Like it's, if someone recognizes me, I go, oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. I don't, that's not my perspective. And I think that's a really healthy way to be. Let's, um, let's switch for a second. What do you think about some of these newcomers like, uh, like Patty the Batty? Patty the Batty, listen, I, I love Patty the Batty. I actually sent him a message uh, the other day just because yeah. I was like, hey, man, don't let anybody steal your shine. You know what he's doing? He's living the dream. He's doing his thing. And ultimately, as we talked about earlier, there's going to be people who are you know, going to throw stones at him because they are jealous of the shine that he is getting, the, yeah. the platform that he is getting. He's got a cool accent. He's got a cool haircut. He's got the whole, uh, the whole city of Liverpool behind him, all of Europe behind him. Um, I think he's definitely got going to contend for a title down the line. Um, but it's interesting. I, I, and I love, I, I saw him fight live. I was in London and my, right. my God, I mean, the poise that this kid has, um, f- for being, you know, new to the, not new to the sport. Obviously he's been doing it his whole life and he's great, but you know, he's still a kid. Um, and he is not afraid of those bright lights, man. Is he, he's so charismatic. He had the whole stadium rocking. He's, he's, he's great for the, for the sport, really great for the sport. But when you look at a guy like that and, you know, I hate to put you on the spot, but your, your eyes, the way you see him is differently than the way I see it. And you know, how brilliant, but how green he is. Like, and you knew right, you know, right now, they put Batty in a cage with you. What happens? Yeah, no, I think I beat him very handedly. But but I also, you know, kind of going back to the joy and the gr- gratitude and the tenacity thing, living between both, I believe that there's enough room for all of us to be successful. Patty That's- the Batty's not knocking on my door in the rankings right now. He's got three fights, five fights, if he if he plays it all right to get inside the top ten, and I could be long gone by then. Who you know? Who knows? No, um, you're you're not. You're going to be the the Tom Brady. You're going to be in your mid forties, still doing yeah, it. I don't know if my wife would be okay with that. You know, <laughs> but, you know, it's. But I, I just see it as in, in and I I've I've actually sent messages like to, that to other young guys in my in my weight class because yeah. I don't have a scarcity mindset. I'm not worried that Patty the Batty is going to come in and steal my shine. There's enough. Mixed martial arts fans out there, there's enough money to be made. There's enough platform. I, I, I cannot, t- I can't tell you how healthy that is. I think yeah. one of the biggest rules to your, to a person's happiness is understanding in your soul that another person's success will never take away from your own. And, and once you realize that man, it's, it's the world is yours. And, yeah. and, and Patty to his credit, I mean, here's a kid, he's, He's he's a superstar. He's so charismatic and a, and a great fighter. He and he's also very honest. He literally said, "Man, I, I ain't ready." Um, he's gonna have to take some fights to kind of really get to that point. And he wants to he wants to keep his O. He wants to keep those zero losses. He wants to keep that going. So he has no problem fighting guys who aren't ranked. He doesn't need to service his ego or any of that stuff. He's he's a hardworking kid that knows he's got to get in there, pay his dues and keep it going, man. Absolutely. And, and to me, number one, yes, he is still young. He's just hitting his prime. Uh, but he fought outside of the UFC for a very long time, got that experience, build that European, uh, that European fan base big time so that when he did come over, he was a superstar. And he also has the wherewithal and the self, the self-awareness and also lack of ego. I think the problem we run into as fighters is immediately we want to get to the UFC ASAP. It's not about getting to the UFC. The UFC will give you a shot at 21, 22 years old, way before you're ready. And then they're going to chew you up and spit you out if if you don't rise to the top. And that's just the nature of the business. And that's nothing against the UFC. But what Patty did was come in at 27. Another guy, Sugar Sean O'Malley, has been very vocal about why am I going to go fight a top five, top 10 guy? You know, wait till my next contract. Wait till I'm getting paid a little bit better. The long game, if you can sustain and continue to do the right thing in this sport, will always bode well financially platform wise uh and significance wise as a competitor uh no matter what so i think patty having that mentality of hey i'm still on this small contract adds add a couple o's to it and i'll find some more ranked guys but i'm just gonna 
take my take my fights one fight at a time. I'm going to get my experience, get my feet wet, and keep building this thing, this let this legend of Patty Pimblet. Don't go anywhere. How you live in J Piven will be right back after we pay some bills. When you think of champagne, you automatically think of that classic tall flute to pour it in, right? But what you didn't know is the flute is not the best way to drink champagne. Now, most world-class sommeliers actually prefer the tulip glass. It's very close to the common white wine glass because it allows the bubbles to fully develop and release the aromas. It's mind-blowing, right? Well, I bet you never heard of Blida, which is basically an oversized shot glass used by the traditional winemakers of the Champagne region. Who knew? I didn't know. Well, just as you probably never considered a wine glass or Blida for Champagne, I bet you've also never heard of EPC Champagne. Now, EPC Champagne, this is the young French brand that is dusting off the aging image of Champagne and promoting ethics and sustainability over profits and quality over quantity. Finally, EPC is the fastest growing brand in Paris and is winning taste tests all over every competition across the globe. EPC not only offers innovative and contemporary drinking experience, it offers champagnes with complete transparency of production, something that is very rare with any champagne brand. EPC also understands the importance of health and responsible drinking, which is why all of their wines have low sugar content. It's lower than any of the other brands. And by the way, I just want to add that the lower the sugar, the lower the hangover. They're not claiming that, but I know that personally because I do a great deal of drinking. And I, anyway, I digress. They even have an award-winning sugar-free Blanc de Blanc. That's amazing. And don't miss out on their brand new rosé from Province. A rose bottle is absolutely beautiful and makes the perfect gift for any event. EPC will be available in the U.S. for the first time ever this year. But for the U.S. Pre-launch, EPC offers to discover its wines before anyone else. Just follow EPC Champagne on Instagram and you could win their full range of champagnes and their brand new rosé. Just follow EPC Champagne and you could be the proud owner of these prestigious wines before anyone else. How cool is that? You can't lose. All you guys have to do, follow EPC Champagne on Instagram to enter. Let's get after it. Do you think, because I know before you made that walk with Dan Hooker, um, they had, you had, were preparing to kind of be, in a way, the alternate for a fight. Yep. So you had two camps. Do you think that helped or hurt you ultimately? You know, it's hard because it's a, it's a tale of two different me's, right? You got the, you got the fighter. Um, I was in training camp for seven months because of the because of the pandemic back in 2020, I went down in I, I started a seven month training camp basically because of the pandemic was pushing everything back from my last fight on my Bellator contract. Then I fought that fight in August, signed with the UFC in September, went back into a camp in September for an October alternate uh, alternate role as the backup for Gaethje and, and uh, Khabib. So it was, I was in such great shape. I was so sharp. I was in, I was in a perpetual training camp for over a year. Now that's great for the the fighter Michael Chandler, but the father and the husband Michael Chandler, it was really rough. You know, I, I trained down in Florida. I got my family in Nashville. My wife is a career woman. She loves what she does. She gets her she gets her fulfillment out of out of doing what she does for work and taking care of uh, my myself and my son. So it never made sense for her to move here. So she was in Nashville. I was in Florida. wasn't tra- wasn't traveling too much back and forth because of the pandemic. Um, but it was a tale of two different me's, you know, as a fighter and a, as, as a father and a husband, it was rough because I didn't see my family as much as I wanted to. But as a as a fighter, I was dead on and I was ready. You know, I knew that. And I've it's it's funny. And I know that that was probably the most grueling seven months of your entire life because people don't realize what a camp is. And now you double it and you're in hell for you're not just in hell for three months. Now you're in hell for seven months. So I felt, to be totally honest with you, Dan Hooker is a beast. I felt sorry for him. I knew you yeah. were going to come into that cage and just let loose, you know, and just be beyond ready. And I remember you you crushed him, jumped on, 
you know, the top of the octagon with the American flag. And it was like, it was like, it was scripted. Yeah, that was. And the funny thing is I actually said that numerous times, like even cause after that I get the, I get the world title shot. Khabib retires. Uh, you got Poirier and Connor who were fighting. They're about to do their trilogy. So it was just a, an interesting set of circumstances that led to me, a guy who just had one fight in the UFC going to fight for the title. Um, but it was, I remember just thinking, man, the way that this whole thing played out, it was perfectly scripted. You couldn't have wrote it better. The best director on the entire planet couldn't have scripted it any better. So it felt like I was going to win that that title right there. And obviously I fell short, dusted myself back off and then had a, uh, had a fight of the year candidate fight with, with, uh, Gaethje. So it's been, it's been great, you know, and, and it's, it's a metaphor for life. That's why we love mixed martial arts. That's why the, even the fans and the casual fans and even just the, the casual onlookers of mixed martial arts, even if they don't love it and it's not their favorite sport, they're drawn to it because fighting and what we do inside the cage and inside the octagon is just a physical manifestation of, of the fights that we're all going through in life and every single thing that we do, every single punch, kick, knee, elbow, ups and downs of all the different um, ebbs and flows inside of a fight is just a, another brush stroke on each masterpiece that you're painting. And it's so much, it's so much close to what life is for so many people. Um, so it's been awesome thus far. And the UFC has given me a huge platform and get to do it again here now in six weeks. And I'm just excited about it. Do you make more? This is a terrible question. I hate being this guy. Do you make more or less with the UFC than you did with Bellator? I hate to be the guy asking that. It's like, it's like what? What's in your wallet, bitch? I'm sorry. Well, you know what it is? It, I, I make more money. Um, I don't necessarily make more money on paper or in, in my fights. But what I've been able to do. Interesting. Once again, going back to the Interesting. reputation. I'm, I may have been a smaller name. I may have been a guy who was overlooked. I may have been a guy who who said, well, he's not that legitimate because he fights in Bellator. But one thing I always did was I kept a really good reputation. Yeah. I kept my nose clean. I stayed out of the negative headlines. I was always in the positive headlines. And then my fights spoke for themselves. I was an entertainer. So yeah. it all kind of just built this longstanding resume for when I did come over to the UFC to be the co-main event on Connor versus Poirier, almost 2 million pay-per-view buys. And then I was the main event for a world title fight. And then I was on another huge pay-per-view the amount of eyeballs that I, that have, that I've been given and afforded by the UFC coincided with this great reputation of being a hard worker, being a man of integrity, being a hard-nosed fighter, being a fighter, a father, a husband, all these different things that I've just tried to be my entire career and it just meshed perfectly and I've been able to make a lot of money outside of the cage and and have some great relationships with, you know, some great companies and some great people. That's amazing. So yeah. If you don't mind, I'm going to dissect that for half a second. Um, you just said on paper. So it's not like you're getting paid to fight. You're not getting more to pay to, to fight in the UFC versus Bellator. That's just it's everything else. It's the it's the platform, the profile of the UFC that has led to more money. Yeah. And and, and that's why I've always been and. You know, I think I, I take some flack for it from fighters because I I don't have a problem with the quote unquote fighter pay argument. I think mm. I think people people think that we should make a lot more money because the UFC makes a lot makes a ton of money on their shows. Well, the UFC has been at it since 1993. Dana White has had 10,000 sleepless nights when most of us fighters are just showing up to practice and going to bed, laying our head on the pillow and, and getting after it and getting paid a, a decent wage for what we do. Um, so for me, I have been able to monetize things outside of just my fights and you won't, you always see guys on the microphone saying that the UFC should pay more or the media should say the UFC should pay more. And it's never the guys who are out there having their own YouTube channel, getting roles in movies, building, building fitness and wellness lifestyle programs, selling merch, doing all of the different things that we, that we can do as fighters. Cause we are independent contractors. We can do whatever we want with our platform and our name and likeness. The UFC owns it and they can, they can, they can use a picture and a video of me whenever they want, but I can sell shirts. I can sell hats. I can do whatever I want. I could be in your next movie. Right. You know, <clears throat> I don't know, but <laughs> we can do whatever we, you know, we can do whatever we want. So it's kind of, it's, I, I always think that there's people on the lower rungs of society, always throwing rocks at the people above them when it takes the same amount of energy to reach up and grab the next run to pull, pull themselves up, um, to get there. But 
that's kind of my thought process on it. And I've kind of just been a self-starter and a, a self-motivated kind of guy. Yeah. It sounds like you're really embracing the gratitude of where you're at. And from that, everything will come, you mm -hmm. know, and some, someone may look at you and say, Oh, you're a company man, yeah. you know? Um, and your ideologies feels like the same. I was just talking to Chuck Liddell and he has the same take on it that you do. And he was a guy that obviously was the face of the UFC. Um, and Dana took him under his wing and, you know, they took care of him afterwards and what, and no matter what Chuck says that, like people throw, throw rocks at Dana, but the reality is that he took the sport and made it accessible for everyone. A thousand percent. I mean, that's the platform that we, number one, we chose. Dana White has never held a gun to anybody's head and made him sign a contract. All right. You know, I chose to sign with the UFC when I could have stayed with Bellator. I could have went to one championship, could have went to World Series fighting, could have went anywhere. They all want, they all wanted to offer me contracts. But um, you hit the nail on the head when you said the word gratitude. I, I, I speak from this point of view because I know what it's like to fight outside of the UFC, to be one of the best fighters in the world at 155 pounds, but not get the credit because I'm not in the UFC. I understand what the UFC brings to the table from a, a promotional standpoint, from a, a, a eyeballs and viewership standpoint, from a making money outside the cage standpoint, plus the deals that are still sifted into the UFC that come to the fighters. I just understand it all. And none of that is going on outside of the UFC. Or if it is, it's a minuscule amount compared to the wealth that you can create and generate in being a guy and one of the big guys inside the UFC. And that's just, that's just what I've seen since the very beginning. And, and I, I do understand that I almost do have this luxury of knowing what it's like outside of the UFC. And I have the gratitude knowing that my employers, my promoters, Dana and, and all those guys, they give us a huge, a huge light to shine. And what you do with it is completely up to you. I, I wonder, because I was just talking to Jorge Masvidal and I said to him before his last fight, um, do you think you, because you've achieved so much and now you, you know, you're fed, your belly's full, are you still hungry? And, and as, as I said that, and I'm not making this up, he was eating plate after plate after plate of sushi. I've never seen any one man, and I've had dinner with him. I watched him eat three desserts. You know, he weighs in at 170, you know, somehow miraculously. Yeah. Um, and so obviously that was a metaphor when I was saying to him, are you still hungry? And he stopped and he said, that's a really good question. He didn't answer right away, you know, um, and he... he, he lost to, you know, Covington. And, um, w you know, we got to see that, 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 you know, he's a, he's a competitor and it didn't sit well with him. And, yeah. you know, you, it's so fascinating to me because you guys are all very different people, very different people. And you're all insanely disciplined, you know, and, you know, when you look at someone like Jorge or, um, or Connor, you know, who have different journeys than you, Obviously you respect the grind, but, but cause your, your journey is different. Your background is different. Your ideology is different. What do you, what do you think about where they're at in terms of their competitive nature, lifestyle, all of that? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, Connor's in a completely different league, obviously selling a whiskey for whiskey company for a hundred and something million dollars, plus the millions he makes every fight. He's in a completely different league. He, the dude doesn't have to work the rest of his life. So it depends on not just what you do, but who you are and, and what your purpose is. You know, um, for me, I, I haven't made $10 million in a fight. Haven't, I'm not worth a hundred million dollars, but I, I would surmise or guess that if I was, it would be maybe a little bit harder to, uh, keep that competitive edge, but it's all tied back down to who you are and why you do it. I got into this sport because I believed I was, I was pushed into this sport or at least um, kind of ushered into this sport with the idea that, man, if I do something great with these gifts that I was given, that other people can see them and other people will be inspired and motivated by them. And then and that was when I was single. And then I married the woman of my dreams. And then we had then we adopted a son and and we're going to expand the family down the line. So you think about these new these new wrinkles and these new added things to strive for. Um, and my purpose is is being a great 
father, a great husband, a great inspiration through my fighting. You know, the fighting is just kind of that, that dangling little shiny object that gets people to say, oh, wow, that guy's a fighter. Right. But then they hear the words that I say, they, he, they see the way that I live my life. They see the intensity in which I throw myself into my craft yeah. and they can see shades of themselves in it. So, um, I would like to think that if I had a hundred million dollars sitting in the bank that I wouldn't slack off whatsoever. Um, but I could definitely see like a guy like Jorge Masvidal, who's got, he's got it, he's got it all now. And he's a huge name. And once again, this was a guy who was fighting in backyards 15, 20 years ago. This was a guy who was labeled a journeyman, had almost 10 losses on his record and had kind of a spotty record. The UFC couldn't quite rely on him to go out there and put a string together great performances to get to a title. And then he gets a couple great big knockouts, huge platforms. And now he's one of the, the most paid guys in on the entire planet. Um, and I don't think it's lightning in a bottle. I think it's years and years and a deck over a decade of pounding on your craft to get him to where he is. And I think uh, it all goes back to what your why is. What is your why? I think really going back to where I was and who I was and how I have fallen short so many times. I was a small guy from a small town who was taught to do small things. And I self-sabotaged so many times. I should have been a multiple time All-American in college. I had that kind of ability and not just that ability, but I, I had that kind of work ethic. I loved doing I loved doing hard things, hard workouts, being the hardest worker in the room. I loved being that guy. But between my ears, I was losing the battle all the time. And it's taken me over a decade now to build up my mind, to build up my self-image, my self-worth, my self-concept into believing that I deserve great things. Um, so my why, aside from providing for, serving, loving, and taking care of my wife and my son and my future family, um, is showing people that – no matter where you started, no matter where you come from, you can become something not just good, but great and not just great, but extraordinary. And you can do some great, amazing things with the genius level talent that you have, because I think I think we're all endowed with that. You just have to find ways, put plans in action, surround yourself with the right people to pull that out of you and string together performances or accolades uh, until you're 37 years old and you become the fresh face. Yeah. People thinking you're the fresh face, but really it took decades why do you think you were sabotaging yourself? I just didn't believe that I deserved to be successful. You know, the story that we, the story that we tell ourselves is, is the most powerful story on the entire planet. I was told that I was small. I was told, I, you know, I didn't have hair in my armpits till I was 18 years old. You know, I was a small guy, came from a small town. Not a lot of people left outside those County lines, because if you go outside those County lines, the chances you fall and flat on your face are, are just too much to bear. Don't take that chance. And something in me said, no, I don't, I don't subscribe to that for some reason. I'm going to go out and try to do something, but I never was able to get rid of that story that Michael Chandler was just a mediocre kid from a mediocre town who was undersized, under talented, underprivileged. Um, and even when I was ranked higher than guys in wrestling, I would find a way to get taken down in the third period and lose a match. It's happened to me in my fight career. Um, and it's all just about what's going on in the battle that's going on inside of your, inside of your mind. You are what you are and where you are because of what's going on inside of your mind and the story that you tell yourself. And I'd be lying if I said I've conquered it. That little guy from that little town is still in me and I have to, you know, keep that roll of duct tape over his mouth. I've just gotten really good at pushing him into a corner and duct taping him to the, the basement of my, of my mind. So he doesn't rear his head in big moments anymore. That's that, that is fascinating. So just the idea that. You know, we all battle that voice. Yeah. Um, and we have different ways to deal with it. Did you find a method that could suppress these voices? Um, is, uh, are, are there, is there a, a skill set? Is there, you know, you, you consistently know when it rears its ugly head, what do you do? I, I think one thing, especially... You know, this idea of, of perfectionism is is really just a mechanism for lack of self-belief sometimes. You know, I think we we call ourselves perfectionists or we want to have a perfect day or a perfect practice or a perfect audition or a perfect writing session or we want it to be perfect when really perfect is never the goal. It just needs to be successful. Um, and 
I think that, like, as I said, that per- perfectionism is somewhat of a mechanism for someone who is lacking self-image. So we find ourselves whenever a negative thought comes in or that small guy from the small town, the, that small voice, that small minded voice pops up, I could beat myself up over it or I could acknowledge it, grab it, embrace it, smile at it and say, thank you so much for being a part of my journey. Because now I remember you're, it's not necessarily a detrimental voice that is speaking to me. It's a realization and a a reminder that thank you so much, small guy from small town who taught me to do small things. Mm. Now I remember, and I'm reminded every day who I don't want to be. And sometimes becoming who you are and who you want to be is just just reminding yourself who you don't want to be. So right, thank um, thank you, thank you for your inspiration. But your yeah. services will no longer be needed. Thank you so much. That's amazing. You breathe through it, and instead of fighting it, or or letting it overwhelm you, and believe it, so that you are the lowest version of yourself, you just kind of see it. And you're, you're grateful that it was there and you knew it inspired you. You breathe through it. And, it, you know, it, it's th- that I know they, this just sounds like words, but that's really powerful. I mean, what we just said is the difference between, you know, you being um, a guy that went out there and had a pretty nice collegiate career, did, did all right, had some had some nice gifts and um, and someone who is a world champion. That's I mean, that, there's there's a big difference. And, you know, people try to examine the difference between good and great. And and I think that that's one of the major variables, wouldn't you yeah. say? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And also there, there's this level of trust that you have to have with yourself. You know, whenever the lights come on, whenever it's your time to shine, can you trust yourself to put on a great performance? You're not always going to peak and you're not always going to have optimal performances, but do you at least have the thought in your mind going into something that you can trust yourself to be reliable, accountable, and put your best foot forward with the skill set that you've created? And that that goes, the small things in life go so much further than we think they do. The way that you do the little things is how you're going to eventually do the big things. You can't be trusted with the big things until you've been, until you can first be trusted with the small things. So being able to trust yourself in those big moments as well. And then also showing yourself the grace, as you said, thank you for your input. Your services are no longer needed. See you later. I'm moving on to the next one. What, give me an example of, of the small things that result in, in victory. Even just things like for me, every, every day, I come home with a dirty bag of workout gear, uh, sweaty gear, sweaty clothes, sweaty gloves, sweaty shin guards. Um, I can choose every single day to leave them in my bag, then make my, make my lunch and then sit here, surf the internet, hang out, watch Netflix, do, do my quiet time, read books, whatever. But I know if I get that done, that's another little thing that I can check off of my list that says I can trust myself to be reliable you know, to make sure I always show up on time. I can trust myself to be punctual. I can show up with clothes that smell good, clothes that look all right. Maybe my hair doesn't look like I just got licked by a cow last night. I can trust myself to be presentable. And these things sound, these things sound so trivial, like they don't matter. But truthfully, these little, these little bitty things that, that we can just compound and lay brick by boring brick eventually lead to better and better performances in every single aspect of our life. And not just the physical things, not just the acting, but our relationships, um, our finances, um, and ultimately who we will end up becoming down the line. There's a saying, don't sweat the small stuff and yet you have to. Don't go anywhere. How you live in J. Piven will be right back after we pay some bills. So you know what's really interesting? Um, I, I smoke cigars all the time, and and everyone, if they're in a picture or whatever, someone says, "Hey, man, where'd you get those?" And uh, you know, I tell them, and you know what my favorite cigars are. And then I just thought, you know what? I because I'm very particular about my cigars. What is the best way to find a cigar that is really right for me that I love that has everything that I want. I really, I want to, I want an easy draw. There's some cigars and I won't name any names, Cohiba, um, that are rolled. They're the best in the world, but they're rolled really tightly and it's, it's hard to pull off them. And so I want like a really easy draw. I want that rich layered flavor. Listen, I went to the, the good people at Illusione. Dion over there is the man. 
He's a master blender and um, he worked with me and he's patient and I'm a little bitch. I kept saying, listen, man, I want, you know what I mean? A little more of the coffee flavor. You know what I'm saying? Can we get some layers here an easier draw, whatever? And here we are, the JPIV Robusto. I, I, I've got, I never thought it would happen. I'm living the dream. Listen, luxuriescigarclub.com is where you can order them. Uh, Illusioni makes them. They make them for me. It was a collaboration. I'm going to smoke one right now. If you guys send your review of the JPIV Robusto, I will send you a free stick and we shall raise one up together. I, I It's the least I can do. You guys send me a review and let me know what you guys think. I really want to know. And the great thing about the internet is they're brutal. So I'm going to get it. You know, hey, be careful what you wish for. I look forward to it. I, I believe in these. Jay Piver Busto. Thanks, you guys. Did you guys know that EPC Champagne is rated in the top 1% of wines in the world on Vivino, the Vivino app, okay? Comparatively, let me give you a little perspective. The rest of the French Champagnes with similar ratings are listed for hundreds of dollars compared to EPC, which costs merely a fraction of that amount. You can do the math on that. Great Champagne for a fraction of the cost, count me in. Here's something else I think is really cool. EPC offers customized bottle etchings so you can put on your own logo. I'm gonna put a little JPIV on there or how you live in JPIV. I'm gonna wake up, I'm gonna start drinking. That's another problem that we don't have enough time for right now. Here's the deal. <laughs> Just imagine how cool you could feel popping your own personalized bottle this summer at the pool, your beach party with your friends, your birthday party, whatever. Giving that special little someone the perfect gift on the perfect day, just a little day drinking, I'll see you there. EPC will be available in the U.S. for the first time ever, you guys. But the U.S. pre-launch, EPC offers you to discover its wines before anyone else. Just follow EPC Champagne on Instagram and you could win their full range of champagnes and their brand new rosé. Just follow EPC Champagne and you could be the proud owner of these prestigious wines before anyone else. How cool is that? You can't lose. All you guys have to do, follow EPC Champagne on Instagram to enter. Let's get after it. My son was born in Dallas, Texas. We were in Dallas, Texas, and my wife and I were pushing her in the stroller because we had to wait for the paperwork to go through for, uh, it was almost a week. So we just found ourselves mall walking nonstop. And um, he was nine months old at the time. And I remember sitting in the, the food court and there was this beautiful little bit older black lady and she was kind of like looking over, looking over. And immediately for me, the inner me was like, oh no, is she gonna come over and you know, say something about his hair. Is she going to come over and say, you know, what is her, her thought process behind it? Yeah. She ended up getting up lo and behold, walking over and I'm, I'm just sweating bullets at this time because it's all new to me. And she comes over and she was just the sweetest, most loving y'all are so amazing, uh, for the, the gift that you were giving this child. And he is so handsome and he is so this, and he is so that. And, you know, lo and behold, years later, uh, people still say that they call it a gift, man. You gave this, this child a gift. You gave, you gave this world a gift, but if people could put themselves in my shoes and see how beautiful of, of a gift I was given and the, the man that I have become by being his father, mm. um, it's just absolutely astronomical. And, and we do live in a society where it's, it is color charged. We all, we always yeah. not be, but society in general, if you had to generalize everything, there's a, there's an identity or there's a color or there's a race or there's an ethnicity attached to everything. And, and I got, a, I get asked this question, how as a white man, am I going to, am I going to raise a, a black man who, um, who is in tune with himself and can be a credit to his society. And I just say, I'm going to raise him the way that I feel led to raise him. And I'm going to show him the entire world. We chose our school based upon diversity. We choose our, we choose our social gatherings based upon diversity. We want, we want, I want him to see people of different backgrounds, ethnicities, colors, being successful, um, having families, doing amazing things with life. And yeah. we're all just, we're all just flying by the seat of our pants as parents. That's what I realized. That's what they didn't tell you. It's every single day you feel like you're flying by the seat of your pants and you got to spend a lot of time praying a lot of time, just trying to, to make the best decision every single day. Yeah, man, that's fantastic. And I, I know you're a great father and you will continue to be. Um, and that's going to be fascinating to, 
you know, I, I've wanted to be a father for a while. Um, I think I want it too badly, but, um, if you know of anyone, uh, who likes, you know, if they like old Jewish guys, let me know. I, I, it's, it, 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 it's, you know, it's not cute anymore. Um, so I want to be in your position, but I know you're gonna, you're, you're doing a great job and it's going to be, you know, fascinating because people, you know, racism is, is they, it comes from a lack of knowledge about someone else or a community. That's really what it is. And it's fear-based junk. You know what I mean? So I, I love, I love what you're doing and, and it's, it's, it's just great. And, um, you know, we're, we're, uh, when you go to work, I know that you're in this brotherhood and people don't, again, it's, it's an elevated state where you're all in this together and there's a pecking order and it has nothing to do with race. And you all see yep. each other for who you are and your spirits and your energy and all that. And that's really the way it should be. Um, I, I think that at some point it's going to be interesting. I think you, like, like everything in your life, you're going to have to embrace it. And people may come to you and talk to you and want to, want to know like what this journey has been with your kid, you know, and I think you guys are going to be an example on how to do it right. And I think it's, uh, I, I, I just see it. It's going to be amazing. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely been something that's been on mine and my wife's hearts. I mean, there's there's so so many people. There's more people than you would than you would think who have thought about adoption or or are actively pursuing adoption. Yeah. And it's kind of like right now, if I said, "Don't think about a you know a yellow fire truck," the first thing that comes to your mind is yellow fire truck. Right. As soon as we went down the process of adopting our son, um, and and then ultimately adopted him your eyes are just open to it. It's that confirmation bias. You see it almost everywhere now in Nashville. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. It's such an amazingly diverse city with a lot of, um, a, a lot of blended families of, of different race and a lot of adoptions. And it's, uh, it's great. We have a phenomenal community and I get, I get reached out to all the time by people, uh, who are thinking about it or want to go down that road, or they're just inspired by it yeah. and they want to do it sometime down in the future. And if my wife and I can be a resource, um, we would love to be in any way we can. Well, you will be, and you will continue to be. Did you happen to see the slap the other night that was heard around the world? I, I, I saw the, uh, the highlights. I, uh, I missed the Oscars cause I was, uh, training or, or flying back or whatever. You were living your life. I was living, I was living my life and yes, I, I mean, it's, it's all you, over the place. You didn't so. want to see us celebrate ourselves yet again, Michael. <laughs> How dare you, sir? I'm sorry. No, but sorry. you know, what's fascinating is, um, I have a reference for stand-up comedy and, you know, Chris is, is one of the goats, one of the yeah. goats. And he hosted the Oscars and it, for my money was probably one of the, if not the best host of the Oscars, what he did, the way he navigated it. And he is a brilliant, brilliant, otherworldly stand-up comic. And there he is standing in front of the great actors of the world and, and Denzel is right in front of him and obviously Will. And what's so fascinating is... As great as you can be in your arena, you step into someone else's arena. The reality is the best boxer who ever lived gets into a cage with you and doesn't have a chance. That's just reality. And that's because of of the hours that you've vlogged, you know, that, that old saying about, you know, what does it take to be great? And it's like that 10,000 hours. It's it's real. Right. And you've put in that time and then some. Uh, so Chris is out there navigating. People don't realize how difficult it is to do what he's doing and then have a guy smack you in the face. Right. And hold it together. Because, by the way, one of the weirdest and the most awkward things to do is when you're presenting because you're not really performing and you're not receiving an award. You're just kind of navigating this no man's land as Chris was doing. And if you notice, Will steps up on stage. Chris has got his hands the worst position possible behind his back. He doesn't yep. even begin to put his hands up to defend himself. There's none of that. And he takes the slap flush on because he never thought this guy's going to smack him. We've had hecklers. We've dealt and navigated all of that. No one, and I guarantee you, no one has gotten on that stage with Chris and smacked him. So he was not prepared for that and then has to then give the award for best documentary and hold it together. You know what I mean? And 
do you remember what you thought when you saw that? Well, I mean, number one was just sheer bewilderment, followed by skepticism. Wait, was this real? Was this a skit? What's going on? Right. Followed by once I realized it was real, just like you said, the amount of professionalism and self-restraint for Chris Rock to and he almost does for a second. He'd be like, oh, man, I could. And he just he stops himself, goes back to professional. I mean, stand up comic actor presenting award all of that stuff is great but boil it down he's still a human being that was just assaulted on the face how do you not react but it you know and it's great that will smith did come out with an apology and he wanted to apologize to everybody in the heat of the moment he wasn't able to control himself but the ultimate self-restraint lays solely on chris rock the ultimate self-restraint of him realizing okay i got smacked where am i there's a billion people watching on the on in on tv right now i just got smacked by one of the the biggest names in in hollywood what do i do and he just you know he did look side stage once to kind of figure out what are we doing here and they just kept moving forward and then presented the award i i could i will i would not sit here and say that i would would have reacted with the the amount of grace and professionalism that chris rock did um and that's not because i'm a fighter that's just because i'm a human being the joke was a G.I. Jane joke, which Demi Moore played, and it's it's a reference to her buzz cut. Yep. She apparently has alopecia. Brother, I have been losing my hair since I was 14 years old. If I smacked every person that made fun of my hair, I would be on death row. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And and, you know, it's it, it, you're absolutely right. Chris took a moment and because all those hours of training is you have to there's a back and forth with anyone in the audience they take your their shot you take your shot and you are absolutely right chris took that beat and was about to retaliate and said i could and he and he and he took a breath and realized i've got i'm on live television millions of people are watching and now he has to go back and 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 be professional and keep the show moving and you know Denzel said, at your highest moment, the devil will come for you. And yeah. I think he was speaking about Chris as well in yeah. that moment because he could have reacted from his ego and tried to tear them down. And Chris yep. is a professional and no one can do it better. And, yep. you know, and and what I saw was a guy who, I mean, Will is one of these superstars that you know, has gotten to play some of the biggest icons. He got to play Muhammad Ali, man. This guy was the Fresh Prince, and he's still popping a wheelie decades later. That's almost impossible, what he's yep. doing. And yet, the way he reacted, um, you know, he immediately, when he accepted his award, said that he's a vessel for love. Um, but 11 seconds ago, you, you smacked my man in the face, so you're also... You know, he's human, but it felt like the actions of someone that has and I'm I am not even qualified to speak on this, but it feels like there's some repressed trauma. There's a lot of stuff that's repressed and that it triggered something because, uh, you know, Chris is one of the best comics in the world. Was the joke one of his best? No. But do you smack a guy on live television for a bad G.I. Jane joke? No, because you're better than that. Yeah. And so that was kind of surreal to watch. Yeah, it was definitely surreal. And what you saw, too, was a, what I think is even though, you know, Will Smith was dancing to get jiggy with it and the after party and seemed like it didn't really bother him and did come out with an apology. That's that's a moment that's going to be a stain, I think, on his on his career and his legacy. I, I don't think it will be. I you don't think no. What I think, because I think he's one of the, I could be wrong. I think he's one of these guys who is on a journey and he, yep. he really is. And he wants to figure out who he is. And, and he's made that, he's made that clear. And I think this could be a great moment to go inward and to examine and then self-reflect and maybe come out of it. I think this is one of those moments where you, it could be the, it could ultimately be this incredible moment, or you could be in denial and say, fuck it. And, but by the way, um, <laughs> by the way, you know, um, again, Shakespeare says so much welcome and an unwelcome 
um, he, he lived an entire lifetime within a few minutes. He broke, cracked, smacked a peer in the face and then won the highest honor a, an actor can win, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so that, I mean, to, can you imagine going to sleep at night going, what in God's name just happened? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing too. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not a stain on his legacy, but I think a stain in his, in his self image and almost that moment of self-reflection where it's like, okay, whatever it was that I was ignoring, which he is on a, a constant process. We're all on a constant journey to continue to, to be better and find our best version of ourselves. But that is somewhat of a, of a rock bottom moment that, uh, and I do, I do believe it was a heartfelt thing. And maybe even it was a, a, a catalyst of him winning that award, getting on the microphone. And even though it was, it seemed so hypocritical in the moment to say, I want to be a vessel of love, but rewind the tape 17 minutes later, you just smacked the guy. It was still, I think a moment for him to, to, to say, you know what, what I did was wrong. And I am saying this because what I did was wrong. And because who I was today and who I was on Chris Rock, Rock's cheek 11 minutes ago is not who I want to be. I do want to be a vessel for love, you know, because right. ultimately we're all just a work in progress. Um, and it is by no means excusable and it definitely in your industry and in the comedy industry, of course, you guys want to know that you are, you know, protected enough that you can make jokes without being physically assaulted uh, when you're on stage. That's where the scary line gets drawn. You know, when you won your first fight into the UFC, you you wrapped an American flag around you and, and took a victory lap. And we embrace our freedom of speech. Yeah. And that's, you know, you know, there are a lot of people that are triggered by their feelings right now. Well, yeah. there's a war going on right now. Um, and, and I'm Ukrainian and those people are fleeing their homes, 44 million people, you know, and there's a tyrant that is taking them out, you know, and we have these complaints. We have freedom of speech and, you know, it's the last arena where we can speak our minds. We're being torn down, you know, uh, Kevin Hart wasn't allowed to even host because of something he apparently said, you know, 20 years ago. Um, we have to embrace our freedoms here. And that's one of those moments. And it's going to be interesting to see how we navigate this further. But I see this as a moment where we can, you know, I love uncomfortable conversations. I really do, because otherwise, how do we learn and grow, man? You know, yep. when's the last time you changed your mind about anything? OK, yep. we all are dug into our opinions and our ideology. Nope. Sorry, brother. You're right wing. You're, you're the devil. I can't listen to you. Fuck that. We yep. can all learn from each other. I, I've been acting since I was eight years old. If you look at one of my performances or a take and you have a suggestion, I swear to you, I will be open to it. That is the only way to grow. I'm telling yep. you, I want all I want is people to tell me the truth, you know, and, and, you know, people are just they, they're living in fear of those moments and we, we, we have to be able to face ourselves. So I, I do think that could be an amazing moment for all of us. Um, yep. And and I, I hope it is, man. I, re I really do. Because, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, back to the freedom of speech, you know, thought, I mean, it's suppression suppression of speech or canceling somebody or saying you're not allowed to say certain things we've gotten to the point where we we don't quite know what we're allowed to say and what we're not allowed to say because of social media because of the news because of everything we all know right from wrong we all know the things that we definitely can't say we all know the things that we definitely can say but there's this gray area in between of not quite knowing what toes the line and what can or can't be say just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So what does it do? It goes back to kind of what you were alluding to that we were put on this earth for relationships, but now it's harder and harder to be in relationship with somebody because you're not, you're not even sure how to speak anymore. So that's the most, I think, unfortunate thing for me. Um, and I would love to see us just continuing to have good, uh, conversations, even with every single person who has a differing viewpoint, exactly like what you said. You know, I was in people's living rooms for a decade playing uh, an asshole, you know, and playing him authentically. And so when people meet me, you know, I've had women say to me, 
drop the nice guy stuff. What is this? What is this? Come on, man. What's this game? And I'm going, I, I literally don't even know what, what do you talk? What it would always throw me for a loop because I am what I am. I'm a stage actor from Chicago and my job is to play each character as authentically as possible. That's it. That is, that's kind of the funny thing too. You know, even when you and I first started talking, I'm like, there still is this perception that, well, he's similar to Ari Gold. He's got to be similar to Ari Gold because you were so authentically perfect in that role that it's so hard for people to understand that you, that you were just playing a role and it's just, but you, but you understand more than anyone. That is my job. That's what I have to do. I have to make you believe that this is the, uh, this is the living, breathing, authentic character who is making everything up in yep. the moment. And the reality is every single line, word, comma, was written by Doug Ellen. And it's my job to make it look like a documentary. Good. It's funny, too, because I've had a lot of the same uh, kind of that same conversation. Like how many times I'm sure you've probably heard it. If somebody mainly knows you because of the Ari, the Ari Gold character, like if they sit down and have a conversation with you at a show or whatever, like, holy cow, I can't believe you're so nice. You know, because I had this idea of who you were as Ari Gold and I get the same thing as a fighter. You see the way that I train and the ferocity in which I fight. And then you have conversations with people. And so many times people say, man, I can't believe you're such a just a normal dude. And I'm like, well, yeah, who I am as a fighter is completely different of who I am as a human being and living between extreme joy and gratitude and extreme ferocity and tenacity being able to intersect those two different characters, if you will, or two different kind of ideologies is, is really fulfilling in a lot of different ways. You, you know, you're fighting El Kukui next, correct? Yep. Tony Ferguson. And I bet you've dreamed about this fight. I bet you've watched him for years. I have. Yeah. You know, and you know, I go back to those last couple of contracts I signed with Bellator, um, wanting to kind of go to the UFC, but it just never felt like the right time. The door never opened and it just didn't feel right in my soul to go. When I did, it felt absolutely perfect. And I came right at the right time. And Tony Ferguson was actually the first name that was brought to us. And they offered it to Tony and he said, no. Um, and they brought it to Poirier. He said, no, which completely makes sense to me. I was a newcomer, you know, kind of no name guy from outside the UFC. And, uh, you know, they, uh, they knew I was, I was going to be a tougher test than most people thought. So I've been looking forward to this Tony fight for a long time. Well, that says a lot about you. You're being very humble right now. The fact that Dustin, the diamond Poirier said no. And El Kukui said, no, they didn't want to fight you. I mean, you're very, being very humble. I was a no name guy. They didn't want to fight you for a reason. There's a reason. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing. You know, the fighters knew who I was, the, the hardcore fans knew who I was, but the risk versus reward in a, in a sport and a lightweight division inside of a sport that is so competitive, the what have you done for me lately business? Truthfully, if I was them, it would have, it would have been a, a tough decision to fight some guy from outside the UFC. So I completely, it completely makes sense. That's why I always tip my hat to Dan Hooker being the highest ranked guy that I could find that would actually say yes to fight me. Um, you know, and everybody in this lightweight division is a, a stud. They are all champions. So it's, it's a great division to be a part of, and Tony's next, and then we'll see what happens after that. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I, 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 you know, I don't want to go too deep in this, but I, I can look in your eyes, and I know that you know you're going to beat this guy. I hate to say that, and it, I'm not being disrespectful to him. He's a legend. I Yeah, I. this is a fight that I, you know, I'd be very disappointed in myself if I didn't go out and finish him or put on such a dominant performance to continue to solidify myself as one of the top guys, you know, I think I argued on that same night, you got Justin Gaethje fighting Charles Oliveira for the title. Both guys who I have fought the whole sport of mixed martial arts. Once, you know, all the fans would love to see me run it back with either of those guys. So I think yeah. I go out there, run it, run through Tony. And I put myself position myself for either a big fight this summer. If Connor comes back and wants to fight me, uh, or I fight, uh, the winner of Oliveira Gaethje sometime in October, November, December, and get the title that I've been, that has been too elusive thus far. I don't want to put any pressure on you, but I'm putting a million dollars on you. No pressure whatsoever. (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) 
I hate that is one that is one of the things that it, that has opened up my mind big time going to the UFC. Obviously, everything is bigger, a lot more fan interaction, a lot more people talking about you. The amount of people that talk about betting on my fights, I got to admit, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable because I'm it, we're fighting in four ounce gloves against the toughest SOBs in our division. It's crazy. He El Kukui is a lunatic uh, in yeah. just the right way. He is a yeah. Hall of Famer. He is a legend. And and this is your time. And I know it's going to be your time. And by the way, I'm Jewish, so I won't be giving away my money. I'm very, very tight with my money. And by the way, the last time I bet on a fighter, and this is true, Anthony Rubble Johnson, hands of stone. Right. He was fighting D.C. and D.C. said, you better bring your lunchbox because I'm going to drag you into deep waters and you're going to tap. That's exactly what he did. I lost a great deal of money. I was crying like a grandmother. Anthony Rumble Johnson started crying as well, retired and went into the weed business. So, sir, (laughs) I will not be betting on anyone, not you or anyone. Thank you. I appreciate that because that's just too much pressure for me. All right. I don't want to end up as a, as one of your stories on your, on your podcast. No, 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 bro. You, you, you got this man. Uh, I thank you for, for sitting down with me, man. You're an inspiration to me and to all of us. Keep, keep crushing it. And we're going to, we're going to check in with you, you know, along this journey. I would, I would love that, man. I appreciate you, man. Not just a fan of, of the characters that you play, but who you are as a person. So it's been an honor for me. Thank you so much. If you ever need anything, holler. Uh, I, I, w- I have 116 things I need from you, sir. But right okay. now. Hey, the, keep just following my way. I'm good. I love it. God bless you, my man. Yes, I, I'll, 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 I'll see you at your victory party. Yes, sir. God bless. Are you, okay. are you coming? You know, I don't know if Uncle, hey. un- Uncle Dana doesn't really like me anymore, but I'd love to show up. We had a little okay, well, falling me, out, but I love Uncle Dana. I love him. Let me, know if you want, let me know if you want to come. Okay. So you're saying yep. if you say Dana, come on, let's let's bury the hatchet. I do have Dana White privilege, you know. There you <laughs> <laughs> oh, go. Dana, White, Dana privilege. White privilege. That's a goddamn T-shirt. I know. That's what Tony said about me uh, a couple months oh, ago. Oh, that's, right. that's right. That's right. Dana it's White. hilarious. He's so he's so funny, man. That is amazing. I know. Uh, so, but you have, uh, I'll strings. All right, brother. I appreciate it. I will be cage side if that's the case. And if you can tell Uncle Dana that, like, listen, Jeremy, I, I'm just a fan of the sport. Dana had the wrong idea about me. We don't we don't need to talk about it. But we uh, we're all here to support the UFC and I'll be there. I'll be in your corner, my man. I will hold I your do. bucket, whatever. I don't care. Count me in. My dude, I love it. (laughs) I'll see you soon, brother. Have a great fight. Enjoy yourself. See you. Take care, brother. How You Live in J. Piven is a cast original podcast in association with Common Enemy. Producer is Kyle Tequila. Theme song by Common. To leave a message for Jeremy, go to speakpipe.com slash jpiven. Catch all new episodes of How You Live in J. Piven every Wednesday on YouTube and everywhere you get your podcasts. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.